www.ghostbusters.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So pleased that you can join us. And so for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a challenge in your personal life that you'd like biblical counsel on or your ministry or maybe just a passage of scripture you're struggling with. I don't have all the answers, but I will do my best to respond to each and every question from God's holy inspired word. There's several ways that you can contact us. The toll-free 877-EXCHANGE is just the call letters, WAGP 980, 877-WAGP 980, or locally the 843 South Carolina Exchange is 525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL. That stands for The Bible Line, tbl at wagp.net. When you do call, you can go on the air live. Uh, We will give always preference to live callers. Or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question, and we're happy to respond to it in that way. Rick, let's go ahead and get started this morning. All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on The Bible Line. Yes, sir. I appreciate uh, y'all taking the time to, to take my call here. Um, I just had a quick question. Um, in, in January of this year, my church, uh, we did a, a kind of a church-wide fast, and those who wanted to participate could, you know, uh, choose something, food or something to fast. Um, and I did participate in that. Um, and I've been asked to um, kind of give not really a testimony, but kind of how it helped me um, uh, you know, in front of the church, um, and I agreed to it at first, and now I'm just, I guess, uh, feeling some uh, hesitation uh, about it, not necessarily getting up in front of people or anything like that, but just whether or not I should do it. I know in, in Matthew 6, um, 16 through 18, Jesus speaks about, you know, basically how it should be done in private. Um, I listened to last week's Bible line, and uh, you kind of touched on this, uh, Dr. Brogy, and just wanted to get your thoughts on that, uh, whether that's something I should uh, pursue, go ahead and, and do, or, or if your advice would be kind of step away from that. So That's a fantastic question, so let me see if I can respond. Uh, you are right. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord highlights three activities that, when done in secret, we are rewarded by God himself. He speaks of praying, fasting, and giving. Praying, fasting, and giving. Now, does that mean that all praying, fasting, and giving should be done in secret? And the answer is no, because there are public expressions of all three. Of course, the Lord in the Sermon on the Mount is showing that unless our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, 
And of course, they were considered like the most holy, righteous people in the world when Jesus walked on the earth. And unless our righteousness exceeds their righteousness, we'll never see the inside of the kingdom of God. And so throughout the sermon, he is basically peeling back their phony righteousness with a true righteousness that comes from within that, of course, can only happen through a birth from above. But take, for instance, giving. There's public expressions of giving in Scripture. A good example would be Acts chapter 4, where Barnabas is led of the Lord to uh, sell a piece of property, and he brings it to the apostles. It's a public gift. He's not doing it for the praise of men. Some might assume he was. But he was doing it for the glory of God and as an encouragement. In fact, uh, his nickname was Barnabas, which means Bar, son of, son of encouragement. And so he no doubt had the gift of encouragement. And he wanted to encourage other believers by his example to give sacrificially. This was not a tithe. This was above and beyond the tithe. So there are public examples of that. There's public examples of prayer. Uh, obviously, in the what we sometimes call the Lord's Prayer, or sometimes it's called uh, the model prayer to distinguish it from the high priestly prayer, but the Lord's Prayer is the t- traditional title, so I'll go with that. But he said, you know, when you pray, pray, Our Father who art in heaven. Not my Father, but our Father. So there's an assumption even in the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, that we're praying corporately. You see examples of corporate prayer in Scripture, like in Acts chapter 4, where the believers are praying, having just been persecuted. Uh, So there's a place for corporate prayer, and most churches have some kind of corporate prayer meeting. Uh, We do it every Wednesday night at Community Bible Church, and we close our Bible teaching time with a time where we can join our hearts together for specific needs, whether they are within the congregation or nationally. And so it is with fasting. There's also public expressions of fasting. You might want to uh, listen to a sermon that I did on fasting where I really kind of cover the uh, issue in some depth. In fact, I go through a number of reasons as to why God would even mandate fasting. I go through about seven or eight reasons why God's people should fast. And of course, um, The assumption in the Sermon on the Mount is not if you fast, but when you fast. So if it were me, uh, and and so there are public expressions, like, for instance, there were at Antioch in the church, uh, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, uh, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch Tetrarch and Saul, and while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So you see examples of public fasting, even in the book of Esther. Uh, the people are called to a fast as she goes and she approaches the king. So fasting is done for different reasons. And if it were me, I would probably say, hey, listen, um, uh, you know, when I stand up here to tell you about the fact that I am fasting, I am standing up here to tell you about something that was a public fast in our church, not a private fast. Uh, I don't want to tell you when I privately fast, or as Jesus said, I'll have my reward in full. That would just be uh, to receive the praise of men, and that will be the full reward you'll get. And I'm not here to do that. But I am here to affirm the biblical truth 
of public fasting, that there's a time to do it. And a couple times a year, I will often ask the church, maybe it's a special event or a special holiday in the life of the church, like Resurrection Sunday, and I'll ask the people, maybe you could skip a meal this week or go, you know, fast accordingly as God would give you the physical energy, assuming you're in good health and, uh, and, and fast for this particular event. Uh, so there's an earnestness that fasting brings in prayer. Number one, just the time factor. Let's just say you skipped lunch today to fast and pray. Well, the time it might cause take to drive through, you know, Chick-fil-A and get your meal and eat your meal or, or cook a meal or whatever it is that you do, uh, you could spend some additional time in prayer. Or if you skip lunch today and throughout the afternoon you had these little hunger pains that you don't usually have because your stomach is you know relatively full those are reminders to pray so god sees earnestness in prayer the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much and so there there are these you know prayers that we offer and then there's really fervent prayer and fervency in prayer can be accentuated through fasting so nothing wrong with it Though I will tell people, and again, I, I, I don't know who this is that's calling. It's a Virginia area code. But I will say that um, if the only time we fast is in a public expression, then maybe things are out of kilter. It's kind of like occasionally when I'm leading the Wednesday night service, you know, I've said, hey, this is not the time to catch up in your prayer life. And if the only time a person ever prays is, say, at a Wednesday night service, then they have good reason to examine their heart and to question their motivation. Well, why am I even doing this? Uh, So it's important that these same three things express themselves in a private way before God. And so, again, there would be nothing wrong with you standing up there. But if you wanted to contextualize Uh, what the scripture teaches. And you might listen to my sermon, I didn't get to it on Daniel 9, where uh, I go through a number of reasons why God causes us to, uh, gives us to pray and to fast, six or seven reasons, and there's more, but I highlight the major ones. and, And again, Jesus assumes his people will fast, not if you fast, but when you fast, here's, here's how you do it. But I would definitely contextualize my comments within um, the broader teaching of Scripture, because I think that would be instructive and helpful to people. Uh, And two, that no one might, you know, unfairly judge you. Christians can be very judgmental sometimes. You know, um, I I was speaking to a brother last week. I'll give you an example. And he said, you know, I know you're, you're playing to some family in our church when you recommend that we give free Bibles out, and you're kind of giving them a pat on the back. And I said, well, number one, you don't know what family I would be speaking to. And number two, let me tell you why I do this occasionally. And I don't do it all the time. But let me tell you why I do it occasionally. Because I had people who have come up to me and said, hey, you give away these, you know, $70, $75 Bibles for free when someone comes to meet the pastor. And, you know, that's about what I tithe a week because I make $750 a week. And why are you giving, you know, my tithe money to some person to receive a Bible. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that. And so the fact is, is that I was mitigating against people who might have a problem with our using tithe money to give free Bibles to visitors. And it's not 
given. I'm not using their tithe money. I'm using a special gift that a particular individual has been giving uh, so that we can buy these really nice Bibles and give them to people for free. So Christians can be real judgmental is what I'm trying to say. And when he heard that, he he caught himself in his own judgment. And we do that all the time. We can do it. I can do it. Anyone can do it. We don't, we, 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 we act on information that we really don't have. And um, so anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Andrew from Okatee says, hey, Pastor Brogy, how financially secure should I be to support a wife and how much money should I have saved up? Thank you. Well, Andrew, that is a great question. And as he, um, I don't know how old you are, but you're obviously at that point in life where you're thinking about getting married. And this is counsel that I give uh, to my sons as they were preparing for marriage. And they're not all married, but one is getting married here in just a couple of weeks. We're having a COVID wedding, so it's a little bit different. Usually I invite the whole church because they've known him since he was a baby. He was born here, but I can't this time. Uh, and the reception has to be very limited. I can't practice a different set of rules in terms of social distancing for the reception that I would ask some other member to do. So even a number of my own brothers and sisters will not be able to come by the time we comprise the bridal list and some non-negotiables locally uh, in you know my own sons and daughters and grandkids. It, it filled up pretty fast. With that said, I said to my son Jameson, as I said to my other sons, you know, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. So to be successful in marriage, there has to be a leaving, and the leaving expresses itself on many levels. Certainly, there is an emotional leaving where when there is um, a problem or a challenge, you don't run back to dad or mom. Uh, you have a new family. Uh, a family does not start when children come in. People say, well, we want to have a family. Well, if you're married, you already have a family. A family begins the day you get married. Now, your family may be enlarged with children that God will bring into the picture, but you have to be able to leave, and part of leaving, too, is leaving financially to be able to cut the financial purse strings. And so um, I do a pre-interview before we do the six one-hour appointments. There are some things that have to be in place or could be in place by the time I marry someone. And so there's a minimum typically of a six-month window before we can marry someone at Community Bible Church. If someone comes and said, hey, you know, we're, we're just really in love and we want to get married next month, will you do it? My answer is no. Uh, I'm not in the business of marrying people. I'm in the business of building Christian homes. And so in the initial uh, pre-appointment, there's some questions that we ask, like I remember one couple and I said, well, I can't marry you because she was a believer and he was not born again. And I shared the gospel with him in that first appointment and he didn't want to receive Christ. And so I had to inform them. I said, what you would be asking me to do is to disobey God and I can't disobey the Lord by marrying you. Now, if you end up receiving Christ as your Savior, maybe we could have this discussion at a, another time. And two, you've got to be careful. You know, I wasn't looking for some marriage altar conversion because sometimes you get that where someone will say, a young lady will say, well, I can't marry you because you're not a Christian. Okay, I'll become a Christian. 
And uh, sometimes they really do, but sometimes they really don't. And as soon as they're married, it's like, oh, I'm not going to church. And you can go. You can do what you want. And you find out that he's not really born again and regenerate. So you want to make sure you're, one, marrying the genuine item. But one of the questions I ask is their financial uh, debt. I want to know how much debt they have. And I also want to know initially, from what I can tell, if they are able to support someone. So I remember one couple, I said, you know, you're not really in a position to support this woman. And he said, well, I think I am. And and I said, well, from what you've told me, I don't think so. Have you thought about this expense? Well, my dad's always paid my car insurance. I didn't really think about that. What about this expense and that expense? And, you know, by the time we were done, he realized he really wasn't ready. And I said, look, come back in six, eight months, a year. Maybe things will turn around for you, but I can't marry you if it's not obvious that you're in a position to leave and to cleave. Now, I would tell my sons when they were in high school, I said, you know, you may get married someday and you want to have uh, some money saved up. And by God's grace, none of them had any debt when they got married. And this is a challenge for a lot of young families uh, that are starting off because of school loan debt. And, you know, I encourage people to really be careful with school debt because, you know, where I went to Boston College right now, it's $78,000 a year. You couldn't pay me to go back there. (laughs) I wouldn't pay that kind of money to go to that school. Though it's a top university, I just wouldn't pay that kind of money. It's not worth it. Unless they want to give me a full scholarship, I wouldn't go. Why would I want to have over $300,000 in debt when I come out of that place? I promise you I wouldn't. So, um, you know, this school debt crisis is a real factor. And I often, you know, encourage seniors when they come in for their senior appointment to graduate. If you're going to go into debt, don't do it on an undergraduate degree. Do it on a graduate degree in the right kind that will pay for itself. Um, And there are some creative things that people can do. Sometimes they can take courses at a local school, stay at home for the first two years, then transfer Uh, get some of their core credits. Some can take some of those core courses in high school. Um, By God's grace, my kids usually had one year of college credit behind them before they even graduated from high school. So there's some creative things you can do to shorten the span, scholarships and other things. Um, Lay that aside. You have to be able to leave and cleave. And so a minimum startup for a young couple usually is $5,000. So I encourage my sons, I said, try to save $10,000. You may want to get married when you're 23, 24. Think about putting aside $10,000. Why? Because, okay, you go and rent an apartment, and there's uh, the initial month. There's the final month in case you skip ship. And, uh, and then there's the security deposit that in many apartment situations is equal to a payment. So there's basically three months payment on day one, uh, if you haven't had, you know, prior, um, you know, set up with the utility companies, then they will look at your apartment or house and they'll say, well, this house averages, you know, $250 a month over 12 months. So you need a $250 electricity deposit, water company, same thing, gas company, if you have that. And so uh, there's a lot of startup costs uh, when you um, get married. You may have some furniture, you may not. 
It's nice to have a bed to sleep on. It's nice to have a kitchen table to sit at. Uh, but again, one of the things that we require for someone at Community Bible Church to get married is after the pre-appointment, there's six one-hour appointments, and there's about 20 hours of homework, and I make no exceptions for that. So I'm doing that right now with my own son and future daughter-in-law who get married next month. Uh, these are important factors, and one of the um, skills that they have to have in place any couple that I marry is a budget. And so they have to go through the financial course so that they understand the biblical basis for being a good steward, for saving, for giving, uh, for what God says about debt and so on. Um, And so the budget should reflect those things. So certainly, uh, Andrew from Okatee, you got your head screwed on straight. Uh, Dollar figure, minimum five, maybe think about ten. Uh, because there is some initial startup costs, and you don't want to go into debt. So my wife and I, when I graduated from Boston College in 1978, I went through the CPA program, and most guys were out of the CPA program starting at $36,000 a year, which was a pretty good salary, but it was a top business school that uh, we were coming out of uh, for the late 70s. Well, I went to work for this Christian organization that paid $9,800 a year, and uh, we got a little bit of a raise when we got married. But uh, look, we, we were determined not to go into debt. And actually, for our first few months, we had an icebox with a piece of plywood that we put on top of the icebox. And my wife put a tablecloth on that, and that's what we uh, ate off of. So we were creative, uh, but we didn't go into debt, and we bought a lot of used things. And, uh, you know, and it was real. It's You can walk through my house today, and I can point to a lot of objects and just say, here's how God provided for this object. Sure, you can provide on the credit card, but then you miss the blessing of God's provision and God's timing and God's uh, way of blessing you. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right. Suzanne from Hardyville says, in Revelation 3.12, when Jesus says he will write his own new name on him, does that mean Jesus will have an actual new name? Well, this is a good question um, in Revelation 2 and 3. And by the way, the outline for the book of Revelation. Are we still playing Revelation right now, Rick? Um, oh, no, we passed oh, that. Oh, we, we yep. passed it. Mm-hmm. So we're doing what all of the... Well, let's see. Now sp- we're doing the three spiritual growth. special, and it's growing in Christ. Yes. Okay, growing mm-hmm. in Christ. So um, in either case, if you studied the book of Revelation, and it's all online at searchthescriptures.org, there is a phone app that you can get in download the phone app so that when you're out in the yard, you know, gardening or cutting the grass, if you have one of those special headsets or whatever, you can, uh, you can listen. And, uh, we have done, uh, extensive study on the revelation over three years. And in chapters two and three, you have, uh, seven churches of the revelation. And your question comes from revelation three, Christ's message to the church at Philadelphia. And so to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, and angel is not here a literal angel. Uh, John the Baptist is called an angel. He was not a literal angel. His disciples were called angeloi, angels. Uh, They were not literal angels, but it just means a messenger. And in this case, it's what we would call today the senior pastor. And he gives an admonition. He says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power, which was a blessing that they had that. 
and have kept my word and have not denied my name, uh, behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them and know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I will also keep you from the hour of testing, uh, that hour or that testing that will come upon the whole world uh, to test those who dwell on the earth. So this is a promise um, because they have the marks of genuine conversion in the new birth that they won't be here for the great tribulation. And that's a promise to every church. Remember, this is not just what he's saying to the church at Philadelphia. With each of these churches, he will end um, his dialogue with the statement, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, not to the church, but to the churches. And so for those who have the marks of genuine conversion, they won't be here for the hour of testing that will come on the whole world. By the way, there's never been an hour of testing not since Noah's day, that has come on the whole world. And there won't be until the great tribulation period. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. Speaking here of rewards. Then he makes this statement where your question comes. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. A pillar is a, a picture of strength and stability. And so the apostles, for instance, are called the pillars of the church. Uh, when people come with me to Israel, we'll go to some ancient, ancient places. And in some of those places, the only thing that's left standing are pillars. And God willing, we're planning to go uh, two different weeks right at the tail end of September, last few days, first week of October, then a second trip, the second trip uh, week in October. So if that's something you're interested in, um, it will really enhance your Bible study. It moves from reading the Bible in black and white to full living color. It just really makes some things come alive. So it's a blessing if you're able to go. All the information there is at searchthescriptures.org. Though I will tell you, Israel has now opened up widely. In fact, they're getting ready to drop their mask policy across the whole country. Um, And so things are really looking great there. And starting in September, for the most part, all the trips are full. Uh, with Christian organizations. In other words, uh, six, eight months in advance, you have to say, hey, I'm bringing 50 people. And so they book the hotel rooms for, you know, 50 people. Now, our trip has just opened, so it's not full by any stretch. There's plenty of room either week. But if that's something that's of interest to you, go to searchthescriptures.org. Now, let me get back to your question. Having given that commercial, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. And so, again, he's saying here that the overcomer will receive uh, this imprint of three names, uh, the name of uh, they'll, in that they'll be identified with their creator, with their with this city and with the Christ, the Messiah himself. You know, I write my name sometimes on things that are important so that if it's lost, somebody might return it. And we're very important to the Lord, and this is really where we get this habit. By the way, this has nothing to do with getting a tattoo. (coughs) Excuse me. In either case, the writing of the name is identifying them as God's citizens in heaven, 
and they will bear a new name, the name of the Savior, in the name of the city. And the name of the Savior that we read of here is described as a new name that we don't know what it is. So to answer your question, yes, this is a new name. Under the old covenant, uh, we knew the Savior as the angel of the Lord. Under the new covenant, when he walked on the earth, he was called, <laughs> excuse me, Yeshua, uh, Jesus. But there's a name yet to be revealed that's going to be written on us. And it may be a title. You know, sometimes we read, thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. Sometimes the term name in scripture is used as much as anything of a title that God gives. We know that one of the titles of the Messiah that is given in the Revelation is he's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. A title, by the way, that is descriptive not only of God the Son, but also of God the Father. And to give both the same title, again, is an affirmation of equality and that Christ is equally God as with the Father and as with the Spirit. So it's a new name yet to be revealed. We will find out someday. A lot to look forward to. Good question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Sherry from Beaufort, South Carolina writes, I have been invited to hear a presentation on the Passover experience from John 129, led by Justin Crone, who traveled around the country with this presentation. I Googled him and found he is a longtime member of Willow Creek Community Bible Church, or Community Church in South Barrington, Illinois, and is a Holy Land tour leader. He is speaking at one of the more liberal churches, so I'm just uh, wanting to be very discerning when listening to his presentation. Are you familiar with him? Thank you. Well, Sherry, I'm not familiar with him by name, but obviously I am familiar with the church, Willow Creek Community Church, and it was started by Bill Hybels, and it used a very similar paradigm as did Rick Warren, and their thought was, is we need to create the Sunday morning service to be seeker-sensitive, that we create the service with uh, the unbeliever in mind. Now, listen, if you know me, then you know that I am one who cares about lost people, and I want to win lost people to Christ. But we never do so at the expense of changing clear dictates that God has given in his word. And the worship service on Sunday morning is not to be designed for the unbeliever. It is to be designed for the believer. And so, you know, the sermons are shorter. There's a lot of fluff, a lot of entertainment but they're not expositional. They don't typically deal with difficult truth in these seeker churches like Willow Creek. I was speaking uh, for a banquet that I was asked to speak in some years ago in Chicago, and um, it was a fundraising banquet, and I was the the key person uh, that was asked to come. And, and so I thought, you know, I think I have time to go over for one of these Saturday night services at Willow Creek. And so I did, and what a disappointment it was. It was what I feared it was going to be. I didn't go in there with a preconceived, this is the way they are, and this is what I'm going to leave with. I went in with an open mind, and this was in their early years. And sadly, it was everything that I had heard, and it was everything that it should not be. And so, you know, we're living in a day where instead of 
we have men who stand up in the pulpit as pastors to feed the sheep. We have clowns who are doing nothing but entertaining the goats. And it's really sad. And it was basically an entertainment service. And as it turns out, you know, some people criticized me some years later and they said, well, you know, Bill Heibel says that he's repented and that, you know, he is, he was wrong and that, well, he didn't repent of anything. When he made that statement, all he repented of was, uh, now we have a new plan when people come in to evaluate where they are in their journey with the Lord so that we can best disciple them. Well, and you can use this in your church and it's, you know, I forgot what the price was, sixty nine ninety five a person. It's, it was just a big money-making scam. And again, you take all the air out of the balloon, and it came out, of course, that Bill Hybels was nothing but a fake. And he was carousing with women in the church for decades. And it was very, very sad. And when it all came out, the entire elder board resigned and Uh, New elders came in, not to mention the church in and of itself was fundamentally in violation of the role of men and women in in the church. And so they had, I I think at one time, seven female elders and five male elders. It should have been all male elders uh, because the term elder is equivalent to the term pastor or bishop. and, And it's an office that is to be filled with men because God has different uh, functions for men and women in the church. Now, let me just believe here the best for just a second. Suppose uh, this individual that you mentioned in your email is a born-again Christian. And let me just say, when people would visit from Willow Creek Church and come to Community Bible Church, sometimes they would come, they'd come into this, oh, it's a non-denominational church, that's kind of what I'm used to. Well, remember, every non-denominational church comes down somewhere in terms of their doctrine and what they reflect. Um, They may be non-denominational Joel Osteen preaching another Jesus. They may be non-denominational, we're going to charm snakes and be slain in the spirit and foam at the mouth. It can mean anything, you know, so somewhere you've got to pull back the veneer and find out what do they mean. So let's just say for the sake of argument, this guy didn't even go to Willow Creek but he is going to a very liberal church. I would want to know, well, what's his motivation? Is he going there to tickle ears, or is he going there to tell them the truth? Hey, look, if I had an opportunity to speak in a liberal church, I would take it because I would share the gospel. Now, I wouldn't do something in a formal way with a liberal church where we join arms. Uh, The the Mormon church down the street from where we're sitting in this uh, radio broadcast studio back in the 90s, asked me if uh, I would help them with an anti-pornography campaign here in Beaufort County, and my answer was no. Why would I want to join hands with people who deny the deity of Christ, who deny the doctrine of the Trinity, who deny the inerrancy and infallibility of the 66 books of the Bible, who deny salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Why would I want to link hands with them or any liberal church that uh, denies basic truth? Look, we've got Presbyterian churches in our own town that do gay marriages. I would never do anything with them. We've got cooperative Baptist churches uh, the Baptist Church of Beaufort, Tidal Creek. Why would I want to do anything with them? 
I would never want to do anything with them. Someone who has a shaky view on the infallibility of Scripture. You can use the same terms, inerrancy and so forth, but you have a different dictionary in which to define it. So there's a place for biblical separation. So let's just assume this guy doesn't go to Willow Creek and he's going in there to share the gospel, great. He might have an opportunity. But the fact that, A, he goes to Willow Creek, and he's a part of a church that is errant and has lost its way would make me highly question um, why he's even going there and what he's hoping to accomplish. He may be a good brother who is just like misdirected and in gross ignorance because he hasn't really been trained and taught in the scriptures. And there's some people like that. And when you open the word of God to them, they, they think twice and they reevaluate. Anyway, these are good questions. Let's go to the next one, Rick. Corey writes, in your basic discipleship series, you stated that the context of Romans 6 is regarding the spiritual baptism and not water baptism. How did you come to this conclusion? I've been trying to improve my understanding of the role of baptism in salvation. So over the last several days, I listened to the five baptism sermons you gave during the basic discipleship series. This challenged many of my beliefs regarding baptism. I came from a Catholic background, and the doctrine that has been the hardest for me to move away from regards the necessity of baptism. The arguments you made against pedo-baptism clearly refute the Catholic teaching on ex opere operato. However, Romans 6 seems to marry the gospel by grace. God became flesh. He lived the perfect life, died for all, was buried, resurrected for the forgiveness of sins, and this gift is available to all that persevere in the faith to baptism. I understand this to mean that it is through baptism, one that presupposes belief, that we join in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and thus makes baptism a part of the gospel and not an addition to the gospel. Thank you in advance for your consideration and inevitable correction. Well, just remember that every time you see the word baptism in the Bible, it's not always in reference to water baptism. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter uh 12, the Apostle Paul is dealing with the subject of spiritual gifts. And so he makes this uh, very pointed statement. And this is, again, a good example where we let Scripture interpret Scripture. For he says, for even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. So clearly what he's referring to here is not water baptism, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit that happens at conversion. Uh, this is what Jesus distinguished in the, uh, at the ascension. There are five times where the Great Commission is given in the New Testament, in uh, four, in in those five times, uh, two of them are wed together. The end of Luke and Acts one, and then on four other occasions. But here on the time of the ascension, uh, Jesus gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, "You heard of from me." For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So again, when you, uh, so, so when does the baptism of the Holy Spirit take place? Well, for them, it was still in the future. Why? Because the Holy Spirit had not yet been given because Christ had not yet been 
um, glorified when he spoke of it in a future tense. And then he said, I have to leave that I can send the spirit to you. So they hadn't in a formal sense received yet the Holy Spirit. So when does it happen now today? Well, again, as you move through the Acts, in the first listening of the gospel, people are immediately baptized by the Spirit. Good example, Acts 10, with Cornelius and his household. They didn't have to wait for anything because Pentecost was already a historical fact. And so when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says, in him, speaking in Christ, that's who the pronoun references from the prior verses. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, what's the message of truth? The gospel of your salvation. Now, the gospel, as you know, Paul says, is that Christ died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. So you have to listen to the message of truth. So pedio baptism, obviously someone can't listen to the message of truth as an infant and respond. Uh, They don't have that capacity yet. Uh, After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who's given as a pledge of of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So again, you have to hear the plan of salvation. Uh, You have to believe the plan of salvation. And that's when the baptism and the sealing of the Spirit happens. It's a, a simultaneous event. Uh, now, in fairness, so, you know, it's easy to dismiss infant baptism. Number one, there is no example of it anywhere in Scripture. Uh, number two, as you've heard the series that I did in the basic discipleship course in the handout on baptism, we went through all the household baptisms. And in four out of five, it specifically says that everyone in the house believed. And that's the assumption in the fifth. And that's the assumption in the Great Commission. Go make converts, disciples of all peoples baptizing them. They have to become a disciple before you can baptize them. Then you teach them. Uh, Jesus said in Mark's gospel, that event when the Great Commission was given, not like in Matthew 28 on a mountain in Galilee, but in the first upper room meeting on Resurrection Sunday, he said, believe and be baptized. So you first believe and then you are baptized. Go preach the gospel to every creature under heaven and you preach for men to believe, and then to be baptized. So faith always uh, comes before baptism. Just like in Acts 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, look, water, why can't I be baptized? And conditionally, Philip says you can only be baptized if you have first believed. So again, faith always precedes baptism. Now, so it's easy to dismiss pedio or pedo infant child baptism. And so we usually affirm what's called credo. In other words, there's a certain creed that is believed or post-conversion baptism. Um, And so here in Romans, um, the question becomes, well, is he speaking to people who are able to hear and reason the gospel and believe? And are they born again in baptism? Well, clearly not. That would contradict so many other scriptures. Number one, baptism is a work. It's described in Matthew as a work of righteousness. And Paul says he saved us not on the basis of works done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. But Paul says here in Romans chapter 6, what then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And of course, he is saying that in light of what he has just said, that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. 
which, by the way, is an excuse, uh, is a reason that diminishes any excuse that we might make for someone where we conclude they don't have a chance. I mean, look at the home, look at the atmosphere, look at the circumstances, look at the place, look at the country, uh, look at the paganism that they were raised in. How could they ever believe? Because we're sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Well, some false teacher might reason, well, I might as well sin it up that I might get more grace. And Paul's simple answer is, may it never be. May Ganoinen. Absolutely not. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism. He's not speaking here of water baptism because water can't put you into Christ. He is speaking of the fact that the Holy Spirit He baptizes us, we just read it from 1 Corinthians, into the body of Christ. He identifies us with the Lord Jesus. In fact, one of his titles is, he is called the Spirit of Christ. So baptism can't put anyone into Christ, contextually letting Scripture interpret Scripture, and just his whole argument that we're saved by grace and not by any works, Romans 3 and 4. And he opens chapter 5 by saying we're justified by faith and therefore we have peace with God. Baptism has nothing to do with it. Baptism is important. Uh, Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Well, if Christ didn't send him to baptize, but to preach the gospel, That means baptism is not a part of the gospel. In fact, he defines that gospel in that same epistle. He said that in 1 Corinthians 1, 17, and then in 1 Corinthians 15, he defines the gospel as the death, burial, and the resurrection. And we just read, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel, and baptism is not a part of it, You, and having believed it, you, you are sealed, you're baptized into Christ to use the language here of Romans chapter 6. So um, today, those who say that you come in contact with the blood, that you're regenerated in the waters of baptism, are just wrong. I mean, they are just wrong. And so you have the Church of Christ who say, without being baptized, you can't be saved. And, you know, and they use this text and they use Acts 2.38 out of context. Let each of you be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. And clearly there it's water baptism. And they say, see, you're, you're baptized for in order to be forgiven of sin. No, it's the word epi. It means because of. I give you a medal for your bravery not in order to be brave, but because you were brave. They repented epi at the preaching of John the Baptist because of the preaching of John the Baptist. And so clearly the pronoun or the particle um, doesn't mean what the Church of Christ wants it to mean. They take John 3, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, and they say, well, water is, you know, baptism, and you have to be water baptized as well as spirit. No, that's just a gross distortion of Scripture, and it totally dismisses the clear illustration that Jesus gives to Nicodemus when they get down to grassroots as to how one is born again. 
is just making a parallel between that which is born of the flesh, which is flesh, that's your physical birth, that's your water birth, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit, that's your second birth. And then he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So baptism has nothing to do with getting us into Christ. It's only an outward symbol of what has happened inwardly. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We have an anonymous uh, listener who has emailed us. He writes, hello, Dr. Brogy. As a fellow believer in Christ, I completely believe that every verse of the Bible is inspired by God. But a theory has been floating around for the past few years that the forbidden fruit mentioned in the beginning of Genesis was actually a metaphor for sexual intercourse, but I've always believed it was a literal fruit as it was described. Is that theory valid or could it be true? Thank you so much. Well, it's not a recent theory, Mr. Anonymous. Uh, It's actually been around for several hundred years But I would say it was certainly popularized in the 1960s by a guy by the name of William Brenham. Uh, There was a number of Brennanites here in Beaufort when I first came, and they would really get mad at me sometimes. And I remember two guys stomping into my office, and they demanded an appointment, and my secretary was reluctant. I said, I'll see these guys. And by God's grace, one of them ended up coming to Christ. So William Brenham was the leader of a cult. And he introduced um, into America largely, again, it's not unique with him, a highly unorthodox view, what is often called the serpent seed or the serpent seed doctrine. And this teaching basically says that the original sin in the Garden of Eden was not eating a fruit, but it was a sexual sin that Eve committed with the devil, that she had an intimate relationship with the devil. And so they take the verse here in Genesis 3.13, where I've turned to, and the old King James says, uh, the servant beguiled Eve. And they take that to mean that he seduced Eve sexually. That's not what's in view. There was nothing wrong with sex. God said even before the fall, be fruitful and multiply. So there is nothing wrong with sex. God blessed, blessed it. Of course, they don't have that relationship until after the fall. But uh, the argument of William Brennan and those who teach the serpent seed doctrine say that, well, Cain was the son of Eve and Satan, and that Abel was the son of Adam and Eve. Well, that just ignores so much Scripture. Again, the best interpreter of Scripture, as I just said to our last caller, on baptism is scripture itself. And so I'm reading from the book of Acts, and this is the sermon that Paul gave on Mars Hill. And he says that God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own people have said. And he quotes, um, uh, 
one of their 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 teachers of the day. So here's here's the deal. He makes it very clear that he made from one man every nation. So the serpent seed doctrine that Cain is a byproduct of a physical relationship that the devil had with Eve, and it's argued, well, he didn't have legs, he walked upright, and that's just such a distortion, such a misrepresentation of the clear teaching of Scripture. But that's what the cults do, to use Peter's words, they twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. He says, from one man, by the way, that makes us all related. Uh, Ken Ham will often underscore there's only one race, and he's right. You might have a different measure of melatonin in your skin. You might have a different uh, eye shape than my eye shape because what happened at the Tower of Babel when God divided the people according to their languages is people married within their language groups, and when you do that long enough, you develop certain racial features. And uh, that's exactly what has happened. But William Brennan, he was a member of the KKK. He was a racist himself. And so he argued against black people because they were the byproduct of Cain and then Cain's descendants and, and that Cain originated with a relationship with the devil. And the scripture says here, we all came from one man. By the way, Romans 5 teaches the same thing. We are all descendants of Adam. And I might say when we're, while we're here in light of the current controversy that's going on in our nation, having determined their appointed times in the boundaries of their habitation, you know that God establishes boundaries, that God establishes borders, as we might translate it? A nation without a, a border is no border at all. Look, I'm, I want to be compassionate towards the alien, but what is happening in our nation where the southern borders are open? Chinese people, I heard this morning driving in on Fox News, they're paying upwards of $35,000 to get across. Most of the people are paying between uh, $2,000 and $4,000 to getting across, depending on which cartel they use. Well, if you average, let's just say $4,000 is the average and $100,000 came through in, in, in January, we're talking about multi-millions of dollars these groups are bringing in. And the sad thing is a lot of children are coming in. And sometimes the children, it's been discovered that their parents are not really their parents. A lot of them have been sexually abused. And, you know, our new president has created a disaster by changing a policy that Trump put in place. And in January of 2019, we had 9,000 people cross the border illegally. We had over 100,000 in January. And it's not stopping. It's growing. They're selling T-shirts. I am here by invitation of Joe, President Biden. They, they're wearing T-shirts across the border. Have you seen them? It's absolutely absurd. Anyway, our nation is coming unraveled because we are turning away from the living God. We need him. Look, you can't control maybe the whole nation, but you can control yourself. By the way, there are some important issues going on in our state house today. They need to hear from you. There's some people, my own state representative is opposing the Religious Freedom Act uh, that will protect us. Anyway, we're out of time. Thanks for being with us today as you walk with Christ. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.